Hello, I am Gabriel Bronner, and this is the Big Compute Podcast. Today's topic is pushing the boundaries in aerospace design. We know about Concorde, a supersonic commercial plane that started flying around 1976. It was a technical success, but unfortunately, at around $20,000 a round trip, the economics did not work out, and Concorde stopped flying. More than 40 years later, Boom is embarking in building Overture, a supersonic plane where the promise is that passengers will pay the price of today's business class seats. Boom has been using HPC in the cloud, and in 2017, they received the HPC Wire Readers Award for best use of HPC in the cloud. To discuss this new era of supersonic flying, our guest today is Josh Kroll. Josh is co-founder and VP of technology at Boom Supersonic. Welcome, Josh, to the Big Compute Podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, let me start by asking you the basic. Why supersonic flying? That's a great question. Um, so I, I guess I'd start off by saying uh, Boom Supersonic is sort of really about uh, redefining what it means to, to fly by reducing travel times by more than half and helping us fulfill the mission of bringing the world closer together. We're the only really, really the only company out there building commercial supersonic aircraft. And, um, you know, our, our mission is to remove the barriers to experiencing the planet. And that's time, money, and hassle. We're obviously focused right now on time. And uh, there's sort of been a, a theme from the beginning of this company around innovation and agility um, and that, that ties to the mission, but also to how we test and validate our aerodynamic designs and use different materials. And, uh, and also, again, to pushing the boundaries with our computing needs, which is what we're talking about today. No, that's great. So you say reduce the time in half for all of us who are not thinking too much about this. Give me a sense of that means if I'm going to cruise the Pacific or the Atlantic. What does it mean for a normal traveler? Right. Yeah, it's, a, it's, uh, it's pretty it's pretty meaningful from the perspective of a traveler who has, you know, an agenda like flying from JFK to, to, to London, for instance. Uh, we're about 2.6 times faster at Mach 2.2. Um, so it roughly cuts travel times in half. And for most of us, we haven't really experienced what, uh, you know, cutting travel times in half actually was like in our, in our lifetimes. But because the last time we saw that kind of step change in, in travel was when we went from propeller planes to, to jets. And, uh, but uh, what, if you look back at history, what, what we learn is that the um, second order effects of, of reducing travel times are just as impactful as the first order. So obviously for all of us who travel a lot, we'd love to get there faster. That means more time at home with our kids, more time to the work that we care about. But, uh, but a lot of the second order effects tend to be just as, as big a deal. The, the kinds of travel that you choose to do completely change. Um, one of the, the best examples that I, I have on that is um, before the, uh, the um, adoption of jet travel, um, uh, you know, before the introduction of the first jet airliner, um, you, and if you wanted to get to Hawaii, uh, it would take you about 15 hours on a flying boat, a propeller boat, um, propeller airplane rather. And, uh, and so not very many people took that trip. And, uh, and so after, after the introduction of the, of the first uh, airliner, jet airliner, uh, you could make that trip in half the time. And in the next decade, Hawaii became a travel destination and travel went up um, tenfold. And, 
And so if you look at destinations like uh, Australia, um, they're about as far today from the west coast of the US as Hawaii was before the dawn of the jet age. Um, so it gives you a little bit of a sense of, of what it would do to the world to, to cut travel times in half. And that's really what we're all about right, right now. Um, that sounds great. I, I do remember that when my parents had traveled, I go to the airport, say bye, it was a big deal. They traveled for a long time. And now we travel perhaps for a week to go to places we can travel for a few hours, I imagine. Mm -hmm. Cut time in half, the world will be closer. We do other trips, right? Exactly. It changes the kinds of trips you choose to do. And that's where, that's where you really start to have a major effect on the world. And, uh, and of course, if you talk about how it brings people closer together, that means cultures become closer and communication comes closer. So there's, there's a lot of reasons why um, it's, uh, it's tremendous, tremendously good for the world. That's great. It's great to hear. We, we're going to feel that the world is a smaller place after this is happening. Let me ask you a question. Uh, we, we know that Concorde um, did fly. So technically, we understand some of the challenges. But because it wasn't viable um, as a business, um, it didn't really succeed over time. So what has changed over time to now make uh, Boom uh, a viable company with a good business plan? Yeah, that, um, that's a great question. A lot of people go, go to Concord and, and ask that question because obviously we know Concord was successful from a technological standpoint. It, in fact, it was in, in many respects ahead of its time, kind of a technological marvel. Um, and, but, you know, they only made 14 of them and, and they're only in museums today. Um, so we're working hard to sort of revive that dream and bring that back. Um, I think the you know, the fundamental drawback to Concord, as you mentioned, was the efficiency and economics. Um, to start off, it had more seats that could be filled at the ticket prices that were required. Um, and the, they had to charge those high ticket prices because of the operating and maintenance costs. Uh, Concord was designed at a time when they didn't have accesses, access to the today's modern carbon fiber composite materials. Uh, they designed using wind tunnels uh, over, you know, decades of, of um, of design cycles rather than having today's sort of computational fluid dynamics uh, approaches. And then the propulsion system was a, was a turbojet engine with an afterburner. And uh, of course, today we have modern turbofan engines and they're tremendously more efficient than, um, than what Concorde was able to use. Um, and so you combine sort of those 50 years of advances in, in um, aerospace technology and you can kind of build on the legacy of Concorde and that allows us to bring uh, Overture to, to market, uh, which is our sort of first supersonic airliner design. Um, Overture addresses a much larger market as a result of having those efficiencies, so, and it'll be significantly less expensive to operate. Um, so we have 55 seats to fill and, instead of 100, and um, operating costs that are similar to subsonic business class. Uh, so it's viable on sort of hundreds to thousands of long haul routes uh, and it would be quieter, more fuel efficient, and more affordable uh, than Concorde, which is why we've been able to kind of make traction with Overture with airlines such as uh, Japan Airlines or Virgin Group, and, and we've pre-sold 30 of them so far. That's great to hear. So if I summarize in my head, um, there's new carbon fiber composites, new CFD, new propulsion systems, um, those have all helped in terms of enabling the design, but also um, you designing for 55 seats, which gives you a better price. Is that a fair summary of yeah, why this is viable? Right. 
Yeah, and then on top of that, I think the, the other the other aspect that people don't realize is the the market for overland supersonic or travel or rather business class travel overland or over water. Sorry, I've said over over land. I meant over water. Um, long haul business class travel market has increased dramatically since the days when Concord was entering service, and so today there's uh, just a dramatically larger market, and that that helps with the the operating economics because you need the economies of scale of um, you know hundreds of airplanes and a, and a robust maintenance network in order to bring down the, the maintenance costs. That's excellent. So this is very good. All the changes have enabled uh, this new innovation. So it's great to hear. So you went off to design the next supersonic plane and you decided to use HPC in the cloud instead of on-premise HPC, which has been more traditional. Can you talk to us about the choice you made? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess it's 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 worth mentioning that what what we've started with as a company is is we're building a um, a supersonic demonstrator aircraft. Uh, so so a lot of our work to date, uh, especially in, with our HPC simulation work, has been focused on that demonstrator. Um, it's proving out the same technologies that we plan to bring to market in the, in the overture design. Um, it's called XB1, and uh, the test the data from the test flights will sort of. Be, uh, will help us design and, uh, and refine the engineering of our of our 55 seat airliner overture airliner. Um, but so we, you know, in the earliest days, we were beginning the design of, of our demonstrator, and we had to make some. You know, we were a startup, and so we had some some significant trades between capital investments in, in on on premises infrastructure, and uh, and being able to use that capital for other things, growing the business, and um, and so you know. I think that the one aspect of, you know, what, what Rescale offers and what HPC in the cloud offers is, uh, is just being able to avoid those upfront infrastructure costs. Um, so, so that was probably the most meaningful reason early on. Today, of course, um, we're not as capitally constrained. We have, um, you know, we've raised a bunch of money and we have the ability to invest in on-premises infrastructure. but. Uh, we actually value the cloud for different reasons, um, and it has to do more with being capacity constrained if you're if you're on premises. So, um, we're, next month we're about uh, well, actually it starts this month. We're we're going to run about 13 million core hours of simulation work, which is, as you know, thousands and thousands of machines, um, and uh, the ability to flex into the cloud and get that work done quickly over you know days or, or weeks rather than weeks and months. Um, gives us a lot more schedule agility and allows the engineers to get their results when they need them rather than have to very carefully plan out the you know, high utilization of on-premises infrastructure that we're um, invested in. So between those two things, I think that's, that's sort of the reason that we, we tend to use the cloud um, most of, with most of our simulation work. So when you started, you say, well, you're a startup, you cannot afford to go buy a big HPC system. That was the primary reason. But today, uh, the needs for big simulation in spikes is what motivates you to continue to use the cloud because of the elasticity. So I think that's, that's interesting. At two different points, you have two different reasons to choose the cloud. Mm -hmm. um, honestly, when I joined Rescale in 2017, I was wondering if something like Boom could be designed in the cloud because my background has been mostly on-premises. And I was surprised and pleasantly surprised to see this is happening. What has been your experience in terms of using the cloud? Um, what kind of applications you run? What kind of results are you achieving with that? Sure. 
Um, so we have, you know, two different teams here that do do simulation um, period, whether it's in the cloud or not. Um, there's our, our main external aerodynamics team, obviously, uh, that's doing full aircraft simulation. Um, these days they're doing pretty detailed database work trying to pr um, prove out the flight handling characteristics, stability control, loads, all of these different uh, workflows uh, that they're, you know, they're producing some fairly large data sets uh, for the rest of the group. Um, and then there's our propulsion team that is doing um, inlet aerodynamics and they're, um, they're doing both design work and, um, and more complex work like unsteady cases and flutter cases and um, shock simulations and such. Uh, so we have both both workflows. Um, we use a, a lot of different codes here. Um, uh, we started off with some sort of uh, either open source or NASA based codes like Fun3D and Cart3D. Um, and we've more recently adopted some other proprietary codes like Numeca and, and uh, CFD++. Um, so we sort of have, uh, you know, what's the best uh, tool for the job kind of approach and um, and we have different pools of expertise within our aerodynamics and, and propulsion teams who who have their tool of choice um, as far as results i mean um, we're modeling things like complex vortex flow over a delta wing uh, at low speed conditions which is uh, not an easy problem to solve same thing with inlet aerodynamics i mean the concord designers took about a decade to get their supersonic inlet design correct and, uh, and our designers were able to do it in about nine months based on uh, um, you know, running the kinds of CFD simulations they can do today. Um, we've been validating this against wind tunnel results, uh, both supersonic inlet wind tunnel and, uh, and low speed aerodynamics uh, uh, results from the wind tunnel and, uh, and getting really good, good matches. So um, overall, I'd say you know, we're, we're using um, CFD the same way any other company is, except that we're running it in a different place, and that allows us to have a lot of flexibility about how we get those results and when. This is great to hear. You're able to compete with uh, large companies developing airplanes, and you mentioned a couple of airlines have bought your airplanes. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, Virgin and, and JAL. Okay. When do we expect to fly them? We want to go. Uh, yeah, so we have a lot of steps ahead of us between now and then. We're, we're most of our team right now is focused on our demonstrator. Um, we're, uh, you know, we, we're uh, aiming to bring that in, uh, into flight test by the end of the year and, and supersonic flight test in uh, early next year. So, um, so that's, the, that's what you know, the majority of our team is working on right now. But we also have a team doing uh, early designs on Overture. And, uh, and you know, the timelines on that are... are uh, our longer term, you know, we, we talk about mid 2020s, but uh, it, there's a lot of steps between here and there. And so, um, you know, uh, one step at a time. And, yeah. uh, and well, you tell me when we can fly it, then we'll be there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> Listen, Josh, it's, it's great to hear how you have this uh, great vision in front of you. Uh, seems to probably spend lots of nights trying to make it happen, but seeing the success in the um, the early design happening and airlines buying this. Let me ask you, what, what challenges do you have in front of you um, right now? Yeah, I mean, I think from, from an HPC point of view, the biggest challenge we have is how to manage the growth of the program and, and the compute demands that it will require as we, as we begin to scale into the Overture program over the next year. Um, we need really high performance and some, some of the 
you know, legacy cloud platforms are, are uh, sometimes struggle with that. And so we're, we're working with the Rescale team and, and with those cloud providers on, on um, trying to get, you know, be able to run these really large billion node kind of problems in the cloud. I think that's kind of pushing the frontiers of the, of, um, of, of what people have done in the cloud in the past. Um, so th those are some challenges that I think we were, we're collectively focused on. Uh, and then I think, you know, beyond that, it's, it's just um, continually looking for how to, how to eke out more performance from these cloud platforms because uh, it, we're getting tremendous advantage out of it, but, uh, but we're always, you know, balancing that trade between what does on-premises look like. And, uh, and, and so, um, you know, so far that, that has been a pretty easy set of decisions, but, uh, but you know, as we grow, that's going to continue to be a challenge for us. So, so far it's working well as you increase the size of your simulation, you wonder how will everything respond? And yeah. will the demands be there and be met? That's great to hear. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're ahead of many people in terms of what you're doing. You're pushing the envelope in aerospace design, but you're also pushing the envelope in terms of moving work close to the cloud. Um, I think it'd be interesting if you have any, any learnings, any, any experience you'd like to share. Imagine I'm a practitioner trying to figure out, should I go to the cloud, should I not, what works, what doesn't, anything you'd like to share for everyone else listening today? Sure, uh, I think um, the, you know, for, for the one-off kind of design cases or um, uh, you know, single engineer kind of workflows, uh, the cloud's ready to go. I mean, you're, not gonna be, you're, you're generally not gonna be doing the volume of work where um, you know, you need to invest in tooling significantly or, or be too concerned. I mean, what Rescale offers out of the box is very, um, very capable of, of, uh, of doing work in the cloud that you would normally do on an on-premises solution. Um, but as you scale up into very large databases where you're running thousands of cases at a time and, you know, pulling back, you know, terabytes of data and such, um, I think just like on-premises, you know, you have, you have to invest in that tooling and, um, and some of the challenges that you run into with the cloud are slightly different than the, the kinds of problems you end up with on-premises infrastructure. So you, you end up grappling with the fact that cloud is multi-tenant and that your, your infrastructure is not always as stable and even though, you know, you're getting this benefit of being able to, um, to uh, burst into a lot more capacity. And so you, if you're starting to do very large databases, you need to have some tooling infrastructure in place to handle that, um, that uh, uh, is easy to underestimate. But, um, you know, I think, I think our partnership with Rescale has been really invaluable on that. We've got a lot, we've done a lot of co-development where we've built things on our side and Rescale's built things on, on their side. And so I think um, the good news is that there's, we're, we're hoping to pave some, some ground here, I think, um, but, uh, uh, but that is that is the only thing to be aware of is that as you scale up in the cloud, it isn't uh, it isn't yet quite as push button as as you you might like. Um, but uh, good progress is being made. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I remember my days when I was working on premise with NASA, and we had the same issues. They were pushing the boundaries, uh, simulating reentry and things like that. And mm -hmm. you know we had to push the boundaries and we had to fix issues as they come up, but they pave the way for normal users coming after that. So in a sense, you're taking a cost that is more of a service to the rest of the HPC community because you're going after millions and billions of core hours. Right. Um, so you're doing it first. You're paving the way for the rest of the people to make it happen. Mm -hmm. It's great to hear your story, um, how you 
pushing the vision of supersonic travel, changing the world. We all want to fly, understanding how you went about uh, choosing HPC in the cloud and what's working, what's not. I'm sure we're going to talk more at some point as, as things progress in, in your company. But before we close, anything you'd like to add? Um, you know, just, just to reemphasize that, you know, what we're working on here is sort of um, uh, in, in, some, in some senses pretty innovative and, and on, the, on the bleeding edge of, of how to solve these kinds of problems and how to build a new company that can tackle um, what, you know, in the past I think only was perceived as being accessible to big aerospace. Um, and so, you know, if that's interesting to people and, and, and you'd like to join our team here, I'd love to, you know, uh, ask you to take a look and, and uh, take a look at our website and, and see, if, see what opportunities are available. Uh, we've got a, a, a couple of dozen of some of the, you know, world-class aerodynamicists and propulsion designers and software engineers here. And um, I'd, love to, uh, I'd love to talk to talented people who are inspired by this kind of mission. So. That sounds great. Hope this helps you recruit more talent to continue to grow your company. This is great to hear. So this has been a fascinating story, and I would like to thank our guest, Josh Kroll, uh, co-founder and VP of technology at Boom Supersonic, for pushing the boundaries in the area of supersonic travel and for sharing his experience that we may apply in our areas. Till next time, I am Gabriel Bronner, and this was the Big Compute Podcast.